Welcome to History Does You. Today we'll be doing our first part on a multi-part series on the US-China competition. This is a series that I've been wanting to do almost since the very beginning of the podcast. It just took me a while to line up guests and figure out topics and how to order it all. And this is our second sort of multi-part series that we've been able to do in the podcast. And it's actually been some of my favorite projects because I think it's always difficult to cover different topics or in really 30 to 40 minutes. There's always books to read or there's so many different aspects that you can only cover so much in a 30 to 40 minute interview. So I think it's great to be able to have multiple parts. And in particular, when it comes to the US-China relationships, it's, it's very complex. It's something that's evolving. There are a lot of different actors and things to examine when you're looking at this competition or relationship, whether it's economic or military power or technological or cultural or diplomacy. There's all these different things. And I think it would be really challenging to only do one episode. So I really want to do multiple episodes to kind of cover all the different aspects of the relationship, how it sort of reached this point how it's going to go moving forward. And in this first part that we do with uh, Dr. Cooper, it's really kind of just a broad overview. It's sort of tracing very broadly how the U.S.-China relationship has gone from sort of the 1980s all the way till now, or even going back further in the first U.S.-China opening in the 70s under President Nixon um, and Henry Kissinger. But we really examine kind of the different administrations, specifically the Obama, Trump, and obviously this incoming Biden administration, kind of what are the different challenges of the U.S.-China relationship, how to kind of navigate that, who are some of the key players in the Indo-Pacific, whether it's India or Japan or Australia or the Philippines or Vietnam. There's a lot of different dynamics there as well. So we kind of cover, again, a lot of broad stuff, but I think it's really important to get kind of a foundation before diving into some of the more technical, more detailed parts of the US-China relationship, whether again, it's sort of diplomatic or the technological competition, or even getting the Chinese perspective about how they see the world and how they want to interact with it. So I hope you enjoyed this first interview and our first part of our US-China series. On today's episode, we welcome Dr. Zach Cooper. He is a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies U.S. strategy in Asia, including alliance dynamics in the U.S.-China competition. He also teaches at Georgetown and Princeton University, co-directs the Alliance for Securing Democracy, and co-hosts the Net Assessment podcast. He's currently writing a book that explains how to predict the future path of U.S.-China military competition by examining how military has changed during power shifts. Before joining AEI, he was the senior fellow for Asian security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a research fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. He also served as assistant to the Deputy National Security Advisor for Combating Terrorism at the National Security Council and as a special assistant to the Principal Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy at the Department of Defense. So welcome all. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. I really appreciate you having me on. And just to start, what is your favorite subject of foreign policy or international relations to research and talk about? Why is your favorite and how do you become interested in Asia and specifically the U.S.-China competition? It's a really good question. So I came to Asia issues sort of in a roundabout way. A lot of people start out as regional studies experts. So they work on Asia, they study Asian languages, they live in the region, and then they sort of add on a functional expertise in addition to their regional expertise. I sort of did this the other way around. So when I came out of college, I went into the Pentagon and spent a few years doing defense policy work. 
And it was actually through that defense policy work that I became more interested in Asia. And the reason is that there's just nothing harder in the defense world than trying to manage the military challenge that China poses. Russia is a hard challenge. Iran is a hard challenge. But just nothing like the scope and scale of the Chinese military challenge. And therefore, if you want to deal with really, really hard questions in the defense world, there's nothing better than thinking about how to manage China's rise, but also how to manage our alliances and partnerships in the region, which I always think are sort of the critical part to making sure that we shape Chinese choices in the ways that we want. So mine was a roundabout way. I started off as a functional expert and then became more of a regional expert over time. Mm-hmm. And just to follow up, what are some of the biggest challenges that you faced either now doing research or maybe in the past uh, working in government? Yeah, I mean, there are so many challenges. Obviously, partisanship is one at the moment that's really just hard to get away from. But I'll tell you, the great thing about working on Asia policy is that it is the least partisan of all of the issues on foreign policy, for sure. So if you work on Middle East policy, Iran can be extremely political. If you're working on Europe and Eurasia, then Russia can be highly political. Same thing, of course, with Latin America and at times even Africa policy. But the great thing about working on Asia is that the politics are sort of less important to most of the experts than the actual policies. And so there's actually a lot of agreement despite the real partisan nature of living and working in Washington. So that's one of the dynamics that can be a little bit challenging. I think the other one that I would just point out is it's always really fun to be in government. Those are the times that I've most enjoyed. You know, if you were to take a day in government, I remember a lot of my times in government from 15 years ago. They just are sort of seared in my memory because the things you're doing are high energy. Their time's really important. And you don't always get those kinds of experiences when you're out in the think tank world, where I am now doing longer research projects that sort of more indirectly affect government choices. But at the same time, I think a lot of us who want to do research, we have to jump in and out of government. That's kind of the way Washington tends to work. So trying to get that mix right has definitely been a bit of a challenge the last few years, not just for me, I think for most people, but it's so important. Having that time out of government is the way that a lot of people recharge and get new ideas. And that's definitely been the case for me. Mm-hmm. And just to get into Asia and U.S. foreign policy, which we'll be talking about today, generally, how involved has the United States been in this region? Is there an extensive history to draw upon when you're researching or is the U.S. presence relatively new? Yeah, so a lot of people think of the U.S. presence as sort of non-existent until maybe 70 years ago, right? The end of World War II. That's actually not right. And you can go all the way back to the late 1700s when the U.S. sort of starts paying a little bit of attention to Asia, not a lot. And there's a fantastic book on this by an old boss of mine named Mike Green. And the book is called By More Than Providence. And it really walks through American strategy in Asia from 1793 onward. And what you find is that they're the same sets of questions that Americans have been asking. What's the value of being in Asia? Is this too costly? Does it take too many resources? All those same kinds of things. These are recurring questions. But there's no doubt if you think about 
about the region, the U.S. has been present, I mean, all the way back to the late 1890s when the U.S. took the Philippines from Spain, right, and effectively became a colonial power. And then all the way up through World War II when we finally basically occupied Japan, right, and have large numbers of forces throughout the Asia-Pacific region. The Korean War in the 1950s leads to a U.S. presence in Korea. So we've had large numbers of troops and a big presence in Korea and Japan basically since the 1950s. And that certainly doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. Mm-hmm. And can you just briefly explain maybe in your opinion, what some of the key historical events that have shaped Asia from sort of World War II till now in terms of how we've arrived to the point now of this US-China competition and other dynamics in the region? Well, I think the place to start is the opening to China that Nixon and Kissinger did in the 1970s, right? So the U.S. didn't have much of a relationship at all with the People's Republic of China. In fact, it didn't even recognize the People's Republic of China as the rightful government of the Chinese people until the 1970s. And then it was a very strategic decision that Nixon made, a choice to basically choose cooperating with the Chinese, even if it was distasteful, to try and pull them away from the Soviet Union. And it was a pretty successful effort. I think a lot of people would say that it helped really weaken the Soviet position, not just in Asia, but more broadly, the fact that you had the most populous communist country actually not aligning with the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union anymore was a big win. But what we've seen since then, unfortunately, is a China that sort of veered in some positive directions. So under Deng Xiaoping, it looked like China was going to open up much more, open up its economy, it stimulated growth. It became a place that a lot of people wanted to go build companies in and sell to as a market. And that accelerated through the 1990s and the early 2000s. But while that opening was occurring, a lot of Americans were still hoping that we were going to see a political transformation within China, not to say that China would necessarily become a democracy, but that it would become more democratic and less repressive. And actually, what we've seen is the opposite in the last few years, right? That China has become increasingly autocratic and increasingly repressive at home, and then fairly assertive or even aggressive abroad. And so I think the big time... The big points to look at where you see a real inflection in American policy are the early 1970s, 1971, 72, when the U.S. engages with China for the first time in a very serious way, the Tiananmen Square massacre and how the U.S. handled that roughly 30 years ago. And then the last, I would say, three or four years, which have been a real shift in U.S.-China relations and not a shift that I know a lot in Beijing are particularly happy about. Mm-hmm. And to kind of get to sort of the modern period right now, some scholars have made comparison between the U.S.-China competition going on to that of a sort of new Cold War. Do you think this is an accurate assessment or do you think that is, I guess, wrong in any way? What's important about the idea of the Cold War is that the U.S. had to compete and it had to work really hard to compete with the Soviet Union. And I think that is a fair assessment of what's needed now to deal with China, right? This was a huge whole of government, whole society effort going back to the 1940s, and it was not quickly resolved, right? You had 45 years of Cold War until the Soviet regime finally fell. Now, I think that's a useful reminder that this is likely to be a long-term competition. It's going to take a lot of time and effort 
But the actual contours of the competition are quite different than the ones that we saw during the Cold War. So the Cold War was largely a bipolar competition. It was really about the United States and its bloc and the Soviet Union and its bloc. Yes, you had non-aligned countries, but they were really secondary or tertiary actors. In this world, it's not clear that we're entering a bipolar world where you sort of have two different blocs. I think we're increasingly seeing that the United States has some pretty strong views. China has its own views, but so do the Europeans, so does India, so do a lot of other middle powers in Asia and elsewhere around the world. And so it's really inaccurate, in my view, then to try and compare how we looked at the Cold War with how we're looking at US-China competition, because actually, I don't think the basic structure of the system is similar. And the other thing that's remarkably different, or two things, really, one is that the Chinese economy is integrated globally into the global economy. And that was just never the case with the Soviet Union. Soviet trade was very limited in part because of its communist system, but just in part because of the attitude of foreign countries to trading with the Soviets. And then finally, there was a much different ideological competition in the Cold War than there is today. The Cold War, the Soviets had an attractive ideology. I know it seems strange now to look back and say that, but a lot of people believed that communism was going to spread. And certainly if you look at Europe in the 1940s and 1950s, a huge amount of real and fair concern that communism was going to end up taking over some pretty critical countries in Europe and not just Eastern Europe, but Western Europe as well. So we don't have anything like that today, right? The Chinese Communist Party doesn't have a particularly attractive ideology beyond its borders. It might not even have that much of an attractive ideology inside its borders. And so I think people can therefore assume that we're not going to have the same type of ideological competition, but it also doesn't mean that there isn't a competition at all, right? I think a lot of Americans believe pretty strongly in democracy, especially having watched the challenges we faced the last few weeks and months. We believe pretty strongly that people should elect their leaders and choose who governs them. And that is not going away, but it's a different kind of ideological competition than the one we had in the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And just to get into different presidential administrations that have taken different strategies towards dealing with China. Just to start with the Obama administration, there was this focus on a kind of pivot towards Asia. Can you kind of just briefly describe what this entailed and whether it really impacted U.S. foreign policy in the region in any way? Of course. So the pivot to Asia was the Obama administration's, its major foreign policy move in a lot of ways. And the idea was that the U.S. had to spend more time and energy in Asia, because that's where the global economy is headed, right? If you look at the population of the world, something like 60% of it is in Asia. Pretty remarkable. And you can look up graphs that show the economic center of the world. And for most of history, that was in Asia. It moved towards Europe and North America over the last 150 years, but it's moving back pretty quickly now to Asia, right? And it's not just because you have giant countries, right? China, India, with 1.4 billion people each. It's also because you have a lot of other huge economies that we frankly just don't pay enough attention to. Japan is the world's third largest economy by a lot, right? Korea, Taiwan, Indonesia, right? A huge, huge country. And we just tend to, I think, be overly focused on other parts of the world 
Some of this is because so many Americans have European heritage and we speak similar language to some of the European countries. But I think some of it is also just sort of historical habit, right? We've gotten used to being a very transatlantic focused country and not spending quite as much time on Asia. And that's something that the Obama team really wanted to reverse. And I think that was exactly the right move. Now, there's some real questions that one can ask about whether they did enough. I think the reality is that the rhetoric in the Obama administration on Asia was really positive, but that they didn't execute everything that they should have. In particular, on the defense side, where I focus a lot of my time, we just didn't see that much of a shift of resources to Asia. Not certainly enough to deal with the fact that China has been pushing forward very, very quickly on a variety of military fronts. So I think the overall logic of the pivot or rebalance to Asia was exactly right, but the execution was a bit lacking during the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. And just to follow up with the Trump administration, who in terms of rhetoric has taken a pretty hard stance towards China on a variety of issues, was this really mostly rhetoric or was there fundamental change in strategy or more or less kind of the same as the Obama administration? So there was one really big change in strategy, which is that the U.S. always going back basically to the 1970s had been trying to engage China. And the logic had been that if you engage China, it would slowly sort of change the nature of the Communist Party and of Chinese society and make it more open to outside forces, maybe a little bit more democratic. You would increase the number of people in China who had an interest in trade and engagement with the outside world. And this would shape China in positive ways. The Trump team made one contribution that I think was particularly important, which was to say, look, that strategy may have been an okay strategy in the past, but it doesn't seem to be working now. So we need to take a somewhat different approach. And so what they tried to do was basically shift towards a more competitive approach, saying, let's focus a little bit less on trying to change China and how the Chinese regime operates and focus a little bit more on trying to push back against China in areas where we think Beijing is acting unfairly. I think that was the right approach. The problem was that, in my view, the Trump team was very inconsistent. So you would have Mike Pompeo speak out about the abuses of the communist regime, right? And he made lots of speeches about the repression in Hong Kong, the human rights atrocities in Xinjiang, on and on. But then you would go and read President Trump's Twitter feed and he would sort of say, oh, don't worry about Hong Kong. This is something for Xi Jinping to deal with and we trust him. And in private, we now know from several White House officials that Donald Trump actually went so far as to tell Xi Jinping that he should sort of do whatever actions he thought were necessary in Xinjiang against the Uyghurs, which is a pretty remarkable statement. We've just had a debate in Washington about whether China's committing genocide against the Uyghurs, and most people believe that it is. And here you had an American president kind of excusing this. So the really hard part during the Trump administration, and it's not only them, this, this happens frequently, is that the rhetoric didn't match. And it wasn't just that it didn't match their actions, but it, it didn't even match within different officials. So what the president said was very different than what Mike Pompeo said, which was very different than what, say, the Treasury Secretary said. And I think that was the core flaw of the Trump team when it came to China. Mm -hmm. And some of the other research you do as alliances in the region, who, in your opinion, is the most important ally in the region for the U.S.? And why do you think that is? 
Yeah, look, I'm biased on this. So take this with several grains of salt, but I think it's Japan. And Japan, first, you know, it's easy to forget this because people often talk about sort of the economic decline that Japan has struggled with, which is driven by population decline. But as I said earlier, Japan is the third largest economy in the world. It's a much bigger player than Germany, for example, right? And way bigger than the British, the French, the Italians, etc. So Japan still has a massive economy. It is a direct neighbor of China. They have disputes, uh, maritime disputes, which are quite tense. It is a treaty ally of the United States, and it's where the United States bases most of its forces in the Asia-Pacific region outside of Hawaii. So from an economic standpoint, Japan is critical. From a military standpoint, Japan is critical. And oh, by the way, increasingly, the Japanese have their own fairly capable military that works very closely with ours. But What's also happened in the last few years is we've seen Japan step up and play just a bigger role on the geopolitical stage and in several new areas. So Japan is doing a lot in Southeast Asia. And there are places in Southeast Asia where Japan is far more welcome than the United States. Japanese investment is highly desired and trusted. Japan also has a lot to bring to the table on technology, right? So Japan, Korea, Taiwan are arguably, you know, the three leading allies we have on technology. And so they're absolutely critical on these kinds of issues. And so the reason I think Japan is so important is we have to build a bunch of different coalitions to deal with China. In my view, there should be one on security, another on economics, another on technology, and another on broad democratic governance issues. And Japan is arguably the only country in the world that is sort of the charter member of each one of those four coalitions. There are other countries that are important to some of them, but don't play in all. Vietnam is critical on the security side, but isn't going to be particularly active on the democratic governance side. The Europeans are really important on economic issues, but they're just not that big players on the security dimensions of the Indo-Pacific region. So for me, Japan is the most critical ally that we have in the region when you put all of that together. Mm -hmm. And it seems that with different administrations have taken different approaches towards China, do you think the U.S. has struggled to kind of come up with a long-term sort of decade-long sort of vision of strategy in the region with the rise of China? Or do you think there is a long-term strategy in place at the moment? I think we're seeing a change in that strategy. From 1972 to 2017, the strategy was engagement. And I don't think the Trump team quite had the right strategy. I think the Biden team is going to take on board this idea of having a more competitive approach. But exactly what that competitive approach should look like, that's something that I think the Biden team is going to have to really struggle with. And they're very, very different views. There's some people who think that you have to really forcefully confront China and the Communist Party. There are other people who think that doing that will just help the hardliners in Beijing. And actually what you should do is try and be sort of more positive in engagement efforts in an effort to help those in China who are more willing to work with the United States. The Biden team is going to really have to walk a very careful line on these issues so that they do, I think, push back harder against unfair Chinese behavior, but they don't make this a self-fulfilling prophecy where anything that China does is inherently bad, and therefore we leave the Chinese no room to make positive contributions. So bottom line is, we're in the middle right now of a change in our strategy on the biggest 
issue in foreign policy in my mind, which means it's a really exciting time to be working on China and Asia issues, but actually a really tough time because we don't know exactly what the strategy is, what it should be. And we definitely don't know how to judge whether it's accomplishing its objectives or not, because we don't know exactly what the strategic objectives are just yet. Mm -hmm. And with a new Biden administration coming in, what do you think U.S. allies and partners' perceptions of both U.S. power and our commitment in Asia is? Do you think these perceptions are changing? Do you think if these perceptions are maybe negative, how might they affect U.S. interests? And what do you think should be done to change them? Yeah, it's it's a critical issue, and there are different views on this. Some supporters of the Trump administration think actually that a lot of America's allies and partners are pretty happy. And there's a little bit of evidence that Vietnam, the Philippines, even Japan in some areas were comfortable with the Trump administration's approach. And there's some other partners that are probably better off now than they were four years ago, like India, in terms of U.S. cooperation. But I think if you look in general at polling data from Asia, it's pretty negative about the Trump administration. There wasn't a lot of effort put into Southeast Asia by the administration. The U.S.-South Korea relationship is really bad. And so there are some real areas where the Biden team is going to have to do a lot of hard work to build back these relationships that have atrophied over the last few years. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag. The good thing for the Biden team is this is kind of easy as these things go, because take South Korea as an example. The U.S. has been pushing South Korea to pay a very large amount of money to support U.S. troops that are stationed there. Now, keep in mind, South Korea has been paying about a billion dollars for U.S. troops to be based there for years and years and years. So it's not that they don't pay. It's just about the amount of money. As a defense expert, we spend over $700 billion a year on defense. Whether the South Koreans give us another $500 million or not doesn't really matter that much. The damage that's being done to the relationship is really significant for that small amount of money. So I think for the Biden team, this is sort of low-hanging fruit, right? All they have to do is be a little bit more cooperative with some of our key allies and partners in the region, and they'll make up a lot of ground really quickly. And the great news for them is that as unpopular as Donald Trump was in most of Asia, Xi Jinping is no more popular. And so we're going to be in a world in the next few months where I think you'll see polling data showing that Xi Jinping is really unpopular in Asia and in Europe and elsewhere, and that Joe Biden is actually quite popular. If you go back and look at the polling when we transitioned from George W. Bush to Barack Obama, polling showed a huge increase in support for Obama. And that's exactly what I think we're going to see with Biden. So the relationships aren't where we need them to be, but the Biden team is going to have a lot of momentum on their side. Mm -hmm. And do you think there are areas in Asia where the U.S. can pursue new security partnerships, maybe with countries that in the past we haven't had the most open or friendliest relationships with? What countries do you think those are and why do you think that is? Yeah, it's such an important question. Let me say a couple of things. One is the U.S.-India relationship, which I mentioned earlier, is just absolutely critical to get right. And the Trump team made a lot of progress with India. Some of this is because the relationship between Trump and Modi was kind of an easy relationship. They're both conservative leaders. They're both very nationalistic. And that actually sort of matched for the two of them. The hard part, though, is that we get a lot of credit for India cooperating more with the U.S. But what really drove that change was China's behavior against India. 
right? It was the fact that China engaged in an unnecessary border standoff, which is still going on with the Indians, and that this sort of drove a change in public opinion within India, and it allowed the government to do more with the US, with Australia, with Japan and others. And so part of what's tough in Asia is a lot of countries, they're hesitant to do more with the US, especially on security issues, because they're so dependent on China for trade. And so it's only when push comes to shove and they're sort of forced to make a decision that they're going to be willing to do more with the U.S. on security. So, yeah, you have some countries like Japan and Australia that have sort of already made their choice, right? They're U.S. treaty allies. There's no going back for them anytime soon, at least. But then there is this huge group of countries that are sort of on the fence, right? Their economies are highly, highly dependent on the Chinese economy, and yet they don't really trust the Chinese government. And so those are the countries like India where we can make a lot of headway when the Chinese overstep. But if the Chinese are careful and calibrate their actions a little bit better than they have, then often it's going to be hard for the U.S. to do more cooperation with those countries because they're going to be so hesitant to put their economies at risk. So unfortunately, a lot of these choices are going to come down to the choices that the Communist Party of China makes about whether to actually push other countries in Asia and to create problems for them. Mm -hmm. And just to cover a few questions about maybe the future of U.S. foreign policy in the region, just to kind of follow up with a Biden administration, do you think there are policies that should be continuing from the Trump administration? I know you mentioned Asia policy is more or less bipartisan. How do you think that is going to work? Yeah, there absolutely are things that should continue. As I said, this more competitive approach that we've already seen adopted by the Trump team, I think that will continue under Biden. I think you'll continue to hear a lot of talk about trying to make the rebalance or pivot to Asia that Obama did real as well, right? So make sure that the U.S. has the security posture in the region to deter any coercive behavior and to defend treaty allies if that becomes necessary. But I think the big challenge for the Biden team is how to make that strategy more competitive without it leading towards a sort of conflictual relationship with China, right? So the right answer in Washington is always to think about three policy options. It's sort of, uh, it's like the story of Goldilocks, right? It's either too hot, too cold, or it's just right. And you always want to suggest that the previous administrations have either been too hot or too cold, and that you're going to be right in the middle where the moderates should be. And I think actually for the Biden team, this is kind of easy right now because they can say uh, the Trump team was too hot. They were too confrontational with China. They can say the Obama team had a different world. They were maybe too cold. They didn't deal with China in as forcefully as we should have. But we're going to be just right. We're going to be right in the center, taking this more competitive approach that isn't too confrontational. So I think they've got an easy task on how they talk about China. The hard thing for them is going to be, what do you actually do? And how does that translate into policy? And that they're going to just have to work out over the next few months. Usually in a campaign, we would have discussed this a little bit. But as you will all appreciate, there wasn't a huge amount of detailed discussion on policy issues, especially on Asia issues during the presidential campaign. And so you've got a team that came in with a lot of ideas about what they want to do, but they haven't had to really test them out and build consensus around them yet. 
So they're going to have a really busy few months trying to pull this all together, probably between now and maybe May or June, when they're going to start having to roll out some of the dimensions of their Asia strategy in more detail. Mm-hmm. And just to kind of follow up, do you think the future of the U.S.-China competition is going to be more about military or about economic power? Yeah, I would say this is a cop-out, but it's the truth. I think it's going to be a little bit of both. And it goes back to something we were talking about earlier, that in Asia, we sort of have two different worlds. On the one hand, you have most of the Asian region, which is economically tied to China, but also most of the Asian region that is tied on security issues more closely to the United States. And there's no way to sort of separate those two issues. They're intermingled, and you have to deal with both of them at the same time. And so it's really going to depend on what issue people are interested in, whether the economic dimensions dominate the security dimensions or the other way around. But I think on most issues, take technology, right? The US and China are in a huge competition on technology now. And it it has both an economic and a security dimension, right? The technology competition is critical to the military edge that the United States has, that China is trying to eat into. It's also absolutely critical to the economic well-being of both countries and of third parties in the region. So it's really going to be hard to disaggregate these two factors. We're going to have to deal with both of them at the same time. Mm -hmm. And do you think that with kind of China's increasing military capabilities, with this pivot from the U.S. and increasing competitiveness, do you think the chances of conflict with China are increasing? And do you think it's more likely than most people would assume? I do think it's increasing. I think the risk is that you've got a rising China, which is increasingly confident, and that's just going to make it more and more risky over time as Chinese leaders become more confident in their own military capabilities. So yes, I absolutely do think we have to be much more worried about the possibility of a conflict. The only good news here is that from an American perspective, I don't think we have to be quite so worried about that conflict happening, say, in the next couple of years, because I'm not sure that the Chinese leadership is particularly confident about their ability to accomplish their military objectives using conflict in that time frame. It would be really, really hard for China to take Taiwan. Not impossible, but an incredibly risky endeavor. And so I think what you're more likely to see is China building up its capabilities over the next two, three, five years, so that maybe by, say, 2030 or 2035, it will have the capability to engage in an invasion of Taiwan, or at least a coercive campaign that would be successful. So I do think the likelihood of conflict is rising. I think it's still relatively low today, but we should be extremely nervous about the chance of conflict probably 10 years from now, certainly 15 years from now, if current trends continue. Mm-hmm. And just to follow up with my final question, if you had to predict key developments in the region in relation to the U.S. foreign policy over the next decade, what do you think they would be and uh, why? Tough question, but an important one. So I think the place to start is by admitting that 
the United States has been in relative decline for a while when compared to China, right? Which is not to say that life is getting worse in the United States. It's just to say that if you look at the Chinese economy today versus 10 years ago, it's way bigger in comparison to the change in America's economy. Same thing on the security side. China is very, very capable today compared to the force that it had in 2010 or 2000. And we just have to accept that reality. And as those trends continue, they're going to make it harder and harder for the United States, both to uphold its commitments in the region, but also to bring allies and partners on side. So my big argument about where I think the region is headed is that the competition between the United States and China actually isn't so much about the United States or China. It's really about the region itself. It's about what countries in the region decide to do, whether they want to align themselves more closely with China as it rises, or whether they think that the United States and its allies and partners in the region have better answers for how people should be governed, right? Not just democracy, but also civil liberties, the fairness of our economic systems compared to, say, the state subsidies and intellectual property theft that we see from China. So those kinds of questions, I think, are increasingly the ones that matter most. It's about how countries in the region decide whether they want to align with the United States or with China. And so I hope that what we'll see over the next decade or so is the U.S. putting a lot more time and effort into trying to engage other countries in the region. And as Kirk Campbell, who just came in as the Asia coordinator at the White House, always likes to say, you have a choice between trying to get China right or trying to get the region right. And it's actually a false choice. To get China right, you have to get the region right. And so my view is, I hope that's where the U.S. starts, because I think the best way to get U.S.-Asia strategy right isn't to start with China. It's actually to start with our allies and partners in the region and then work from there. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Cooper. I think, again, it's a great sort of broad overview of the U.S.-China relationship and really kind of examining really more, I would say, on the diplomatic side. Dr. Cooper has, again, focused on Japan, as he mentioned. So I think this is a good way to kind of understand who are our friends, who are people that in countries that we have to interact with in order to uh, kind of approach this relationship. And, they, and there is this... I think broader discussion going on in the kind of foreign policy community about, well, what's the best way to approach China? Is it whether to take a more competitive approach, which the Trump administration really reoriented U.S. foreign policy towards that, whether to maybe back off a little and try and cooperate, try and pursue things of common interest. I think that's kind of the thing people are wrestling with and how to best approach it. And I think most people have sort of agreed that it's maybe the biggest challenge, not just in the modern U.S. history, but maybe just in U.S. foreign policy history in terms of a country with the military, the economic, the population. And I think you've seen over the last decade, China has steadily increased its influence through the Bell and Road Initiative. Its military has increased dramatically, both in terms of manpower and capability. It's sort of, again, unclear about where this all leads. And I think that's the real question that policymakers are wrestling with. So I hope, again, this gives you kind of a foundation moving forward. And I can't wait to dive into more specific topics over the next couple of weeks with different experts. 
If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end, and thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.